Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Dr. Terrell Givens. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks. Good to be here. We, um, Brother Givens is joining us via Zoom from his home in Midway or Heber City. I always get confused. Midway. Midway. Um, and we're going to talk... Um, um, Brother Givens and Sister Givens were on the podcast, episode 355, talking about all things new. That was a podcast we recorded in December of 2020, and it's about 14 months later. And um, we're going to talk about a wonderful new book that I have read about a third of called The Doors of Faith. That book was released in the end of November of 2021. Just a wonderful book produced by the Maxwell Institute and Deseret Book. And as you may know, um, Dr. Givens is a senior, a senior research fellow at Maxwell Institute at BYU and is the author of numerous books and is just one of my favorite LDS authors. I think it's one of his gifts, of his many gifts, is to connect us with the beautiful doctrine that came through the prophet Joseph Smith and really understanding that doctrine and how it can bring hope and healing and and um, focusing on that doctrine is so key to our restoration. So is that okay for an introduction, Terrell? You bet. So just, you know, you're just talk to us about this book. I'll just turn it over to you so that um, listeners can understand more about this book. Well, the, the title comes from a reference in uh, the 14th chapter of Acts, when Luke talks about uh, God having opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And so on one level, that expression simply refers to that kind of historic development when Christianity begins to go forth to a broader audience. But the the expression has always struck me in a different way as indicating that we ourselves may have access to a larger universe once we pass through the doors of faith. So I, I read it in a very personal way. And uh, I'm, I'm interested and have been for some time now in thinking about the ways in which faith gives us access to a, a larger reality. Uh, it uh, seems to me that there's a kind of epistemological humility associated with faith that recognizes you know, this world is just too variegated and complex to think that it can all be accessed through simple, rational, or scientific or logical means alone. And uh, so I'm interested in both validating other agencies, other ways of knowing, and also in looking at just how much richer life and our experience of the world can be uh, when we don't circumscribe beforehand what we're going to consider to be legitimate forms of evidence or or knowledge. Um, such a needed book. I didn't realize the title of the book came from that chapter of Acts. That's um, I love the way you've built a book around that chapter. Um, talk, I want you to talk more about the book, but since you've written so many books, just kind of, um, do you have like... Um, when does a book come uh, like this come about? Has this been an idea you've had for a decade? Or is this something that then grew out of a, a most recent book and said, I'd like to do this? Is And I assume there's more books coming. I mean, how does an author kind of 
figure out how to do this? Well, my yeah, I think the genesis of every book um, is, has its own story. Yeah, there, there have been some that I just really, really wanted to tell. Like uh, you know, one of my favorite projects was uh, the um, When Souls Had Wings, and that came about just because as a, a scholar of romantic literature, I, I I came to learn over a few years in the profession that it wasn't just Wordsworth. In fact, it wasn't just the Romantics. It was poets in almost every age have turned to this theme of premortal existence. And so I wanted to track that history. Um, my the, the two volumes I did on Mormon theology came about when another scholar mentioned to me that a non-LDS scholar had asked him for suggestions about how to cover the, his basis in a particular field of LDS theology and the recognition dawned that there isn't anything, there aren't any historical treatments of the development of LDS doctrine. Um, all Things New came about because Fiona and I were specifically asked if we couldn't um, elaborate this idea we had presented once in a, in a small fireside about the need for a new vocabulary that would kind of comprehensively and historically address evolution of religious language in ways that had been detrimental to the faith. And this particular book, The Doors of Faith, emerged because when I was uh, finally persuaded to relocate to BYU, uh, which was a hard sell to both myself and Fiona, um, the vice president, or I think vice president, is he for undergraduate teaching? I think John Rosenberg, who's a good friend, wonderful human being, felt the need as a BYU administrator to do something uh, systematic and uh, university sanctioned to address in, in a more focused way the, the, the challenges to faith that so many BYU students are feeling. And so he asked me if I would give a series of four lectures uh, in the Varsity Theater BYU, which I then did in the fall of 2019. And so they were pretty well attended and uh, had a pretty good audience and have had on, on uh, YouTube or whatever those social media sites are where they, they do these videos. And, uh, and so then I was encouraged to put it together uh, for publication as a book. So this book is an expanded version of those four talks that I gave. So in some ways they're a bit more informal. They, they were given as a set of oral presentations. They were focused more than maybe most of my other work uh, on the, the challenges of, of faith and trying to address a young audience, but hoping that, that the message would be applicable to all. Um, tell our listeners where you were before you came to BYU, just in case anybody doesn't know where you well, were and kind of the work you were doing on the East Coast. Um, tell us a little bit about that and just coming to BYU, and then I want to get back to the book. Sure. Well, positions in the humanities in the 1980s, as at the present, were as rare as hen's teeth. And <laughs> I was uh, incredibly fortunate coming out of a really good program at UNC Chapel Hill and having a, just a wonderful offer to be in the English department at the University of Richmond in Virginia. And so I took that and it was just a great position. I loved the university and uh, I taught there for 32 years. Wow. Thinking that uh, I would I would finish my career there, 
um, there had been some overtures made on the part of BYU administrators over the years to pull me out west. But Fiona and I were determined to live and die uh, as Virginians um, by adoption in both our cases. And there just came a time in 2019, I, I felt kind of a push and a pull simultaneously. Um, what some people refer to as woke culture was becoming so pronounced um, in many liberal, um, uh, liberal education universities, liberal arts universities. And I, I felt like University of Richmond was one of those where it got to the point where to walk into the classroom was to walk into an adversarial environment. Um, and I loved teaching. I was, you know, I just loved the profession for most of my career at Richmond. But the last year or two, suddenly I found that students were just kind of waiting to pounce and trying to outdo one another in, in games of catch him. And uh, it wasn't, it was becoming less and less a pleasant experience. And in that exact same moment, um, the Maxwell Institute was making uh, offers to me that were harder and harder to <laughs> refuse. And then at the, just at the same moment, Fiona and I just both felt that, that there was good work that we could do uh, by switching institutions, having more institutional support for the kinds of work we were doing together, both in writing and public speaking. And uh, Maxwell Institute, by that time, we felt was becoming a really vibrant, yeah. uh, forward-looking institute, great leadership with Spencer Fluman and terrific colleagues. And uh, so Fiona's only absolute precondition was we only move if we move to Midway. <laughs> so she didn't, she didn't let us look at any other place. And we had stayed here one summer a few years before and just fell in love with Midway. So we're happy to be here. Thanks for kind of that backstory. Tell us about, is Midway remind you more of Virginia and the East Coast? Or is there something different that connected you to Midway? I, it sounds like you'd been there before. Well, we had just spent the one summer here when I was teaching at BYU one summer, five or six years back. It, it's a little more like the East in that right there's more greenery. We're very close to the Wasatch State Park here. And so just it's just uh, full of beauty. And, you know, this little kind of bowl of a valley surrounded on all sides by snow-capped mountains. It's a more diverse population, right? Fiona and I both are converts. We both come from backgrounds where there's... Uh, a more diverse mix of people uh, culturally and religiously. And so this was a little closer, not, not, not a lot at Utah, but a little closer to the diversity you find in Virginia and uh, no other reason, really just, just the kind of cosmopolitan mix of people and the natural beauty of the area. And the fact that it's out of the inversion, we're all great attractors. You are out of the inversion, and um, yeah. <clears throat> I am in Salt Lake City, listeners, and if you know about our meteorology here in Utah, the Givens do live above the version, inversion and get beautiful winter days without smog and haze, and we can get that in the valley. Um, talk about, as I'm looking at um, All Things New, that was um, published, I believe, by Faith Matters, wonderful organization, and this latest book... The Doors of Faith, I believe, is published by the Maxwell Institute and Desert Book. Um, if you want to, just kind of walk us through different uh, um, different publishers are publishing your books. And we have Faith Matters publishing some of your material and now the Maxwell Institute. I don't know if you want to 
just sure. educate our listeners on a little bit of that. Sure. Well, you know, I feel like I've kind of had two careers running side by side for the last decade. Um, most of my early works were published by Oxford, mm-hmm. and uh, I've continued to publish with them right up through the last year. Um, then when uh, I was asked by Sherry Dew back in 2011 to write a book for a general audience on the church, and so Fiona and I ended up writing The God Who Weeps, and Deseret published that. And of course, that's how you're going to get the, 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 broad, the biggest audience mm-hmm. within the Latter-day Saint readership. And we had uh, good, sometimes challenging experiences doing uh, three of our books with Deseret. But we, uh, we have been um, supporters of the Faith Matters uh, Institute. We, we think, you know, there's a, it's a peculiarity of Latter-day Saint culture that it's very, very hard to find a middle ground um, in terms of kind of public, you know, megaphones. You've, every time an organization is founded that tries to inhabit a moderate space. I think, for example, of dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. Gene Ingle's dream for dialogue mm-hmm. was to embody just that concept. Let's be a place where people at both ends of the faith spectrum and the political spectrum can meet and, and join in conversation. But he wrote in a, in a terribly sad letter that he published in the first issue of the Sunstone magazine, he said, my, my vision largely failed because the organization just veered left uh, and it veered into more of a let's challenge the faith posture than, than he was comfortable with. So Sunstone emerged and they kind of replicated the process. Mm-hmm. And there have been independent presses that have replicated that process. And then you have organizations on the other side, like uh, FAIR or, or farms that have tended to espouse an orthodox line, but without a lot of openness to new interpretive models, new ways of thinking about the faith that might appeal to, to younger, fresher voices. So, I, I kind of feel that Faith Matters inhabits that middle ground. And so, when we were asked to write a book for Faith Matters, we were happy to do that. And, and we love the model that Faith Matters tries to follow of what they call an expansive faith. So, without, um, I think, veering into politicizing of, of one or the other, you know, as, uh, end of the spectrum, they're just trying to, to re-examine our faith in ways that are fresh and maybe tonally adventuresome. And so, we were very happy to do all things new with them. The reason that uh, we went with Deseret and Maxwell for Doors of Faith was because uh, Maxwell was a sponsoring organization for the talks. And so, when they asked if I would submit the manuscript to them, I did. And then Deseret just co-published that with the Maxwell. You know, that history is really helpful, especially for some of our younger listeners that um, kind of pick up bits and pieces. I learned some stuff just listening to you, kind of the long view of, I've loved your work with Eugene England. You've published a book, um, I believe, about um, Eugene England and his writings um, that we could talk about some other time. but. Let's talk about Doors of Faith. I'm understanding more just this came from the four lectures you did at BYU. Do you want to talk for a minute about each of those lectures or go through the chapters of the book or just give our um, listeners a little more feeling for the book? Well, the prem- the, the, I, I, I guess a point of departure, I would say, was a, a passage that I read in, in perhaps my favorite poet, a fairly obscure poet. Um, uh, earlier than my area in the Romanticism, a century or two earlier, his name was Thomas Traherne. Uh, 
And uh, one of the nicest things that could be said about him probably was that a biographer said that he was a deliriously happy individual. So he was this really charming character who was very much almost obsessed with pre-mortal, uh, the idea of pre-mortal life. And he wrote a great deal of really exquisite poetry about his vague recollections of pre-mortality and the process of coming in, in, into this world. So I came across him in that regard. But the thing that he said that was so striking to me was that, that to behold God's face, anybody who has actually seen God's face and has had a witting and willing conviction would find it impossible to ever forsake God. And those two words really struck out to me, willing and witting, uh, especially the latter. And what I took him to mean was a, a couple of things implicit in that notion. One is that um, both John Stuart Mill and John Milton spoke of, of belief that happens to be true, but because it's predicated on weak foundations, it's really just a superstition that happens to accord with the truth. And I, I think that's a brilliant observation. What they're saying is we can, we can have the right answers, but if we have them for the wrong reasons, then that's just another heresy. And I think that that's a provocation to examine our own commitment to, to faith. Uh, it's not enough to believe the right things. Have we made the faith our own? And then the second thing that I, I think is implicit in his statement is that a witting faith, which means a faith that is reflective, that is rational, that is intellectually aware, um, is a, a powerful foundation. It isn't, it's not the most important aspect of our faith, because if faith is actually faith, it has to be relational. And this is part of what I, what I talk about. And for faith to be relational, that means it has to go both ways. And in some really important sense, I, I want to argue faith is a response. It's not just a projection. We're not just leaping into the void, hoping X, Y, or Z is true. But I believe that it has to be a response to, to actual truths and realities and intimations that are out there. But knowledge has to be a precondition insofar as if we don't think that the faith proposition is rational, if we don't think that there are substantive grounds for, for thinking my belief makes sense and is intellectually coherent, then we're not going to venture far enough into that domain to expose ourselves to the experience of God. So, ultimately, I think many of us in the church stop short of that second phase of faith. And, and the reason for that is because our faith is fairly unique, I think, in the Christian world, in that it seems to consist, rhetorically at least, in affirming a whole series of factual propositions, right? People don't get up on fast and testimony meeting and say, I had this experience of God I want to share with you. Occasionally, we might hear that, right? But more often, what we hear is, I affirm that Joseph had this experience in 1820, and I affirm that this visitation of Moroni or John the Baptist occurred on this and this a date. We're affirming factual propositions. And, and that has nothing to do uh, with 
what is the nature of my relationship to God that that conditions? So I, I feel that to fashion a more durable discipleship, we have to have these two constituent elements. On the one hand, we have to have a grasp of, of what are the intellectual demands this faith is making upon us. And are they reasonable enough that I'm willing to go through this door of faith and say, okay, what, what, does, what does that lead to? What does that make possible in terms of my experience of the divine? And then we have to enter into that experience of the divine. Our faith has to make God present to us in some way that is transformative and establishes the basis of a real relationship. And so that's kind of a loose outline of what I was trying to do in this book. So I spend some of the early chapters just rehearsing what I think are the most cognitively appealing aspects of restoration thought. And uh, so I think I, I speak about, you know, so, so some of these ideas Fiona and I have touched upon elsewhere, but I emphasized the, the eternal nature of the soul and uh, the paternal nature paternal and maternal nature of, of God the Father and God the Mother. And uh, I, I think that um, both of those aspects of our restoration paradigm are, are really incomparably rational and uh, intellectually coherent in ways that Christianity itself uh, is, is often lacking, right? I, I think that one of the great deficiencies of, the, of normative Christian theology is that it doesn't give us a really good explanation for why we're here to begin with. What, you know, I mean, for centuries, the idea was, well, we're just, you know, kind of the collateral damage of the fall. And this wasn't even really part of the original plan, but there's this catastrophe in Eden, and now we inherit the detritus of that, right, sin. And, 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 and it's, you know, theologians from Tertullian all the way to John Piper and, and Rick Warren say we were created for God's glory. Well, you know, that would make of him the arch narcissist. So, this notion that, no, there, there's this eternity to the soul, and we are here as part of this ongoing educative process, to me, is just one of the most highly appealing dimensions of Latter-day Saint theology. And then, and then the other aspect would have to be the nature of God. And if God is just this sovereign being of consummate power, um, well, I don't want to be in eternal relationship with somebody who's principle of relating to me is that of power and dominion. And so, I think there is something not just kind of emotionally appealing, but something much more intellectually satisfying in believing that we exist in relationship to this being of infinite love who wants us in a relationship of, of being a peer rather than a subject. That, that just makes more sense. It, it's more morally satisfying. Um, so you put those two together, and it seems to me that suddenly you have the foundations, right, of a, an appeal to a faith that is based in, in something that makes sense at the moral and intellectual levels alike. Um, and, and then I, I move on from there. Um, I love that, Terrell, and I, it's kind of ironic we're recording this podcast on a fast day in February, and I've attended fast meeting. and. I do um, sometimes, I'm a marketing guy, so my bit, my professional background is is marketing. So I think of feature and benefit, and I, so I sometimes look at um, 
a feature is sort of a factual statement of a product, but the benefit is how it moves me or how it improves my life. And so as you were talking about the facts of the restoration and, you know, that statement of my belief in the church and my statement of a belief in Joseph Smith, my business mind says, goes right where you did, is sort of what's the benefit or what's the aha of that or how does that improve my life? And sometimes we don't get to that. And I think that's one of your gifts. And it sounds like a big part of this book is what does that mean for us? You know, what is, you know, these unique um, truths that came through um, a statement that the church is true and it's been restored, Joseph Smith's a prophet. And that's what I think um, certainly I'm drawn to as I age up in my life is the unique, that unique healing doctrine that you and your wife have talked about. And I also think for our young people, as they're navigating sometimes the complex challenges of our church, um, that often connecting them with that part of the restoration can give them a foundation like the things you're talking about to sort of make their way forward and give them a foundation and a perspective and and a way to move forward. Um, so I don't know how you feel about that. I'm sort of the business well, guy in the podcast with my business guy yeah, yeah. mind kind of um, resonating with what you're sharing. No, I, you know, one of my favorite contemporary uh, scholar theologians is, is David Bentley Hart. And um, both he and Terry Eagleton have used similar language to talk about the kind of unrealized potential of Christianity to manifest a transformative love. And uh, I, I think about that phrase a lot, a transformative love, a love that actually has the power to, to change, right? To re, re, reorient us uh, and, and to kind of rearrange the, the universe in fundamental ways. and. Uh, and I think one of the ways that that we haven't fully appreciated or developed in, in restoration thought has to do with this, what, what Fiona and I have come to speak of so often in terms of the woundedness yeah. uh, as a, a healthier and more accurate way of thinking about sinfulness and, and depravity. And right, we keep going back to 1 Nephi 13, where he has that vision and the angel uses that language to say the world will, will be in the state of awful woundedness, right, in the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon. So I think I think one of the payoffs, to use that term, is in the kind of affective response we have to what we think the core meaning of, of, of the gospel is. And I was just thinking today, you know, of the difference between, you know, you see a lot of these, I come from the Bible Belt, right? This the, the fundamentalist South, and you see a lot of these billboards, right? You are a sinner, repent, right? Um, um, there's there's a language and a rhetoric right that that uh, can be very very off putting and I think what is the difference between showing up at a door and saying you're a sinner you need God to save you and saying I recognize there's a wounded dimension to you and I I want to suggest how how you might find healing um, there's something really powerful and efficacious about language that is accurate as well as appealing right, to the emotional imagination. And so I think that Mormonism reframes, right, the entire mortal sojourn in terms of this inevitable immersion in being wounded, right, wounded by others and by ourselves and by our deficiencies and by natural calamities. 
and seen mortality as this progressive kind of reaction to woundedness in ways that can be productive. Um, Nassim Taleb uses the word anti-fragile in what I think is a brilliant way. And I talk about, about his use of that word in this book, right? We think of the opposite of fragile as anti but no, the, we usually use robust to think, oh, well, robust is the opposite of fragile, just like healthy is the opposite of sick. And he says, no, no, that isn't true. To be sick is to be in a position of, of need or detriment, and to be healthy is just a neutral posture. To be fragile means easily breakable. Robust means it resists that, but that's also a neutral posture. So he says, we, we need this new word in our vocabulary, and I'm trying to appropriate that to the religious sphere, and say, what would it mean to say we don't just resist damage, but the res- we respond positively to damage? We respond in a, in a growing, right, productive way to harm or to wounding. And I think that's precisely, right, the message of the restoration is that God is deliberately immersing us in this world of hurt and harm and damage and stress. And the point isn't to just endure it, right? But the point is to, to make those experiences productive of a kind of holiness and virtue that is more than just this neutral, right, passive enduring of, of these afflictions. So that's part of what I find exciting about the gospel too. I think that the whole uh, possibility of theosis is something that is just so genuinely optimistic and uh, proactive <laughs> about our place in the universe, right? That says we don't just wait to be acted upon. God wants, and I love, I love what Brigham Young said, right? That God's, God's hope is to work himself out of a job. He wants to make us as independent in our sphere as he is in his. So, you know, a lot of what I'm trying to do is just share what I find as, as genuinely just exciting, rich ideas in restoration thinking that I think take us so far out of the kind of Protestant mold in which Joseph Smith was steeped and against which he too was trying to react. That's a really golden segment, Daryl. Um, I love that. I love the idea of missionaries um, focusing on the reality we're all wounded, and that's part of mortality, and that's not a weakness, that's a reality. And the ability of the restoration and the doctrine that came through the restoration are understanding of the Savior and Heavenly Parents to heal and bring hope. And you have this gift of as I'm listening to you and reading your stuff, and this is a gift you've given the church of just expanding our view of the restoration um, in a way that I think it continue need. I mean, I just come back to Joseph Smith and given where he was in that environment that he was in, in a Protestant environment, and this doctrine that came through him, um, it's just really remarkable. And I sometimes think we don't fully understand, and I don't, claim to understand completely what we have and and the potential of the restoration to to heal ourselves and to heal others and to create Zion and and really what it means to say we have a testimony of Joseph Smith and all that comes through that. Right. That's that's right. You know, so much of the faith crisis in our contemporary Christian moment as well as in our church in particular often take the form of trying to arbitrate this tension between faith and intellect. And uh, 
I, I, I can't really fully relate to that. Um, <laughs> because to me, what faith does is it simply expands the domain of the intellect. Um, and let me, let me explain what I mean by that, right? We, we know, for example, that we can only perceive less than one-tenth of one percent of the electromagnetic spectrum, right? The visible rainbow is just this minuscule portion of, of, of that spectrum. Um, the, the universe, according to contemporary cosmology, is constituted 95% of dark matter and dark energy that we can't measure, we can't detect, we can't in any way perceive except indirectly. So I think these are two magnificent examples from science, right, of how incredibly delimited our doors of perception are. And, uh, and so it seems to me that if you really are intellectually insatiable, if, if you really do want to live the life of the mind, then you want to be open to all ways of knowing. You, you want to have as much access as you can to the multiple layers of reality, the multiple textures of, of the universe. And so I see faith not as a kind of willful disregard for reason, but I see it as a kind of healthy respect for the place of reason, but for that place where reason stops, those, those domains that reason can't directly touch. Um, I think Thomas Aquinas said this really, really beautiful, beautifully, um, almost a thousand years ago, when he said there will come a moment when intellect is incapable of, of moving beyond its own limits. And that is a moment for faith to step in. Um, I've, I've spoken of this elsewhere in terms of uh, you know, we'll find ourselves at many points in life where there's this kind of equilibrium of evidence on both sides of a question. Is there a God? Is there not a God? Is the prophet false? Is the prophet true? Is scripture reliable? Is scripture not? And this life just seems to be constituted in such a way that we're often going to find the intellect at this impasse. And it seems to me that that's an enticement to see, well, are there other, other avenues of resolving this, this question, this impasse. Um, you know, um, William Clifford in the early 20th century argued that it is always immoral, always unjustifiable to act without certain grounds for acting or believing. And I think, well, that would, that would make us just kind of passively neutral, cowardly individuals in most of life's great transactions. What, I'm not going to throw myself on that grenade that just landed in the foxhole? Because it might go off and it might not. So I'm not going to act because I don't know. Uh, it, it seems that, that uh, the greatest courage manifests throughout our history, especially in the social sphere, has always been manifest by people willing to take a risk, not, not, not by people who were certain beforehand of what, what the, the consequences were going to be of an individual action. So I think there's also something to be said for faith as, uh, as acknowledging the riskiness of our place in this, uh, this veil of, of sometimes darkness and recognize that there are, there are reasonable but not certain grounds for moving forward in faithful ways time and again in our lives. Um, so, I, I just, so let me give an, a concrete example. And this doesn't come from my book. It didn't, didn't make it into this book. But uh, it's, it's one of the stories in the history of science that, that just moves me 
immensely. So it turns out that in 1857, there was a French scientist, and his name was uh, Edward Leon Scott de Martinville. And uh, he, he just had this idea in his head that it should be possible to record human speech. And he, he was aware of the fact that, that, that uh, language takes place in a medium of air, that airwaves are affected by this. And so we ought to be able to register the impact of those perturbations in the atmosphere. And so he developed a kind of precursor of the phonograph. In fact, he called it the phonautograph. And it worked kind of like a seismograph or an EKG monitor. As sound waves went through a diaphragm, they affected this needle and it, and it registered on this paper and, and this, this ink. And it worked perfectly, <laughs> except for one, one problem. He didn't know how to decipher these, these waves. So he, re- he made several recordings, but he never could develop an instrument to decode those, those waves and register again as sound. And so he was forgotten. He disappears into the mists of history. But around the year 2000, three French researchers were, were in, in the, the, the uh, Academy of Sciences in Paris, and they came across these like parchments that had these right strange graph-like markings on them. And they did enough research to figure out, oh, who this guy is and what he was doing. And they thought, well, you know, it's kind of interesting. But then they thought they had this magnificent idea. What if, what if we could translate those lines on, on the graph uh, into digital code and play them back? Wow. And, uh, and so they did. So they, they translated these into digital code, played them back, and, and all they heard was static. So they go home disappointed. That night, one of the three, he lays awake thinking, maybe, maybe we just had the speed wrong. And he rushes back the next day and he plays this digitized code at half speed. And he hears the voice of Edward wow. singing a French song. I just find that one of the most moving and powerful metaphors for how I think faith operates. That voice was dormant for 150 years. The music was there until somebody attended to it in the right way. And then the voice was heard. So that's what I mean when I talk about faith as a response, or faith as an attentiveness, or faith as relation. Because I think what happens in the act of faith is that we are alert to the possibility that, that there is a reality to which we can respond. And that reality is a person, it's a personal voice, a personal presence, and we respond in a personal interaction. And that becomes the foundation of genuine relationality. And uh, so that's what I mean about the doors of faith, that we open ourselves to perspectives and impressions and agencies that suddenly enlarge our world rather than delimit it. That's a really moving example. Um, I will never forget that one. And even the inspiration to listen to that, that static tape at half speed to hear that Frenchman <laughs> singing. That's a great one. Mm. 
just keep sharing with us. We've got like 15 more minutes. If you've got time, <laughs> Terrell, I don't know if you've got more you want to share from your book or just things that are, you'd like to share with our listeners. A lot of our listeners are, you know, probably younger. That's a group that you're very engaged with, connected with, that some might be, and we've used this term already on the podcast, faith crisis, trying to navigate the history of our church or current, you know, issues. And I'm yeah. sure you meet with a lot of people and are very aware of um, really wonderful Latter-day Saints that are, do you have any advice for that group or any advice for leaders or parents that are trying to help that group navigate their way? And obviously the things you've already shared in this podcast are very helpful, but anything else comes to mind? Yeah, a couple of things. So um, let me say, um, let me say, first of all, that I wish everybody in the church would would listen to or read the transcript of Elder Ballard's 2016 address to CES educators. And uh, I don't remember the name of it, but if you, if you Google 2016 CES address of Elder Ballard, you'll get it. But this is, this marked really, uh, I think one of the most dramatic paradigm shifts, certainly that I have lived through in my more than half century. This is, this is the moment when he addressed all right church Institute and seminary and, church education teachers everywhere and said, we failed. And he used that word. And he said, we have failed to prepare our young people for the challenges of a secular world. And uh, what I take him as saying is that the 1936 uh, talk by J. Reuben Clark that served as kind of the, the Bible of church, of church education for more than half a century uh, no longer is appropriate. That's no longer the model. Right. That was the one that said, right, Elder Clark emphasized we have to separate the things of the spirit from the things of the world and don't get the two confused. And Elder Ballard saying, well, actually, no, we we have to address the challenges of the secular world and find a way to integrate these challenges into our faith. And this is also the the the, the talk where he said, if you don't talking to the educators, if you don't have the answer to a question, go to a scholar who does. Yeah. So that's a real reversal from the language of the 1980s, right? Where he's saying, no, we, we have to stop thinking that somehow scholarship is an enemy of faith. And, and, and you have to stop the suspicion that we have. And he also said, uh, if I can paraphrase, um, teachers, a testimony is not an answer to a question. Now, that, that was pretty shocking to hear an apostle say that. But to say it, a testimony has its time and place, but we have to validate the questions that are being asked and, 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 and dignify the people who are asking these questions. Okay, so that's the first point I would make. Second point I would make was having said that, my, my advice would be, please make sure that the questions you're asking are your own. So often these questions kind of get bandied about and it becomes this kind of this kind of game of gotcha of, oh, here's another, here's another chink in the armor, here's another problem. And, and this is why I say, you know, some questions are good questions, but not all questions matter. You know, I, I don't care if Jesus was born in Bethlehem or Nazareth, and I don't care if there were three wise men or seven. And I, I don't think it really matters if he was born in 4 BC or 2 BC, right? Those are all questions. What I want to know is, did God really assume human form and appear in the world as the Savior to be? Okay, so that's a question worth asking. So a lot of the questions we ask about early church history, I think, don't really matter. And sometimes I think we have to ask, why, why, are, you, why are you asking it? Why does that question matter to you? And sometimes there'll be a good reason. Uh, and sometimes there won't. And, uh, but, but can we 
Can we come to the altar with our own questions that are born of our own genuine struggles? So that would be the second point. And, and a third point I would make uh, is my favorite quote from uh, Albert Einstein, who was full of them, right? <laughs> Some of them more invented than, than really his. But this one seems to actually have genuine attribution. He said, he said I'm, it's not that I'm smarter than my peers and colleagues. It's just that I stay with the question longer. And I thought, what a beautiful sentiment that uh, sometimes tough questions can take a long time to answer. And, and we want them now, and we want them ready-made and uh, Google accessible. And uh, sometimes the questions won't be answered in our lifetime. And so I, I think what that means, and so maybe here I'll make a fourth point, is that uh, here's, a, here, here's one way that I think we need to expand our definition of rationality. We think of rationality in simple categories like, well, that's, that's, I, and that's deductive logic or that's inductive logic. We can derive that from general premises or we can extrapolate from experience. But, you know, there's a third kind of logic that's tremendously important and I think is much more relevant to the realm of faith, and that's abductive reasoning. And if you want a really good treatment of that, read Name of the Rose, the greatest mystery novel ever written. Um, but ad, abductive reasoning means we formulate a hypothesis that gives us the best likely explanation for the, the evidence that we can observe. And that's the kind of reasoning we use most often. You show up 10 minutes late for an appointment and your car has a dent in it. Well, it's not deductive or inductive logic. It's abductive logic that says, oh, you probably were in an accident. We don't know that, but that makes the most sense of the evidence that we see. And it seems to me that religious or faithful testimony operates in that way. We have all of this stuff that happens. We have, we have gold plates, and we have the remarkable legacy of Joseph Smith's doctrinal revelations. And we have these spiritual intimations that I have felt in the dark of night. And we have this yearning in our heart for something that seems to be divine and transcend normal experience. And so we have this story that we hypothesize that constitutes a certain plan um, of, or a new and everlasting covenant to give it another name. And we ask, well, does that make the most sense of all the available evidence, affective, intuitive, moral, and historical? And in my case, I say, well, well yes, actually, it does. So, in that sense, it's, it's an entirely rational operation to say, yeah, I don't have concrete proof, and there are a lot of gaps in that hypothesis. But at the moment, it's the best available paradigm to make sense of the most important aspects of my experience and of the historical record. And uh, so I think to think of faith and testimony in that way, and to think of them as necessarily evolving and reconfiguring as, as new elements in the story arrive, um, I think that also leads then to, to, to maybe one more point I'd like to make, and that's that's what I think might be a really useful distinction for many aspiring disciples, and that's the distinction between faith and faithfulness. You know, I've, I, I have actually said uh, in public and maybe in print that, that we, need to, uh, we need to stop fearing the charge that we're engaging in intellectual calisthenics to make 
our testimony fit new new evidence? And I say, no, that's what we should be doing all the time. Uh, of, of course, we should be we should be doing that. And then the question is, well, then how can you be rooted in your faith if it's always evolving? And so here's where I say, well, this this distinction I think can be very useful. In the Old Testament, faithfulness seemed to be the focus of that term as it applied to Abraham and others. And it means that you have a commitment to a person, to an individual on the basis of experience, and you will be steadfast and loyal and committed. That's faithfulness. And I think if we haven't had an experience of Christ, then there's nothing to be faithful to except an institution, and then we're all in hot water. So I think that faithfulness absolutely relies upon some reciprocal relationship where we're, we're responding, we feel there's personality there, we have been engaged enough to constitute an actual relationship that is the basis of our faithfulness. But our faith replies or, or, or refers to a, a set of propositions, a set of understandings, a set of claims, a set of doctrines, and those are always imperfectly understood. We're always in the process of, of trying to assimilate greater light, greater knowledge, greater understanding. And so that's the sense in which I think our faith has to be malleable. It has to be open and organic and, and growing. But that doesn't touch upon our commitment to the person of Christ that we believe this gospel makes present to us. Um, Listeners, we will uh, add a link to Elder Ballard's 2016 CES address that Brother Givens referenced. Um, And I love the way you built off of that and just really set that up as a paradigm shift in our culture about how we talk about things. And that's helpful for parents, leaders to also make that same shift as we're helping this next generation and our selves. But those were wonderful insights. You kind of have the long view of this from a pastoral perspective, from an academic perspective, from a personal perspective. It's very helpful. Um, I'd love you to just, here's a question. There may be younger people listening that would like to follow your career path, um, potentially be get a PhD and become um, I don't quite know the right vocabulary because I don't know all the worlds you're in, Terrell, but, um, you know, are thinking of going to divinity school and um, wonderful LDS people. Do you have any advice for them? They may be undergraduate students right now wondering, you know, could I make a go of this and could I become an author? Could I be um, end up teaching religious studies somewhere? Any just mentoring advice for that group? <laughs> General <laughs> advice? I know it's individualistic on a case-by-case basis, but um, any thoughts of just principles to help people that are trying to make their way forward? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd say that I never in my wildest <laughs> imaginings thought I was going to end up in religious <laughs> studies or writing books for Deseret or, or speaking on the subject of my faith. So uh, the fact that I arrived here is has nothing to do with uh, with plans. I'm an I'm an ardent foe of ten year plans. (laughs) Uh, I just can't say anything good about five and ten year plans. I it's kind of like you know I used to be a chess fanatic. I mean I was I I I was in the chess federation. I competed. You know I wasn't any good, but I remember there were always. 
there was always kind of competition among the chess grandmasters. Well, I can see ahead 15 moves. I can see ahead 22 moves. And I remember there's one, I think his name was Capablanca, and he was once asked, how many moves ahead can, can you see in your mind? And he said, I only worry about the next move. I just make the best move I can at any given moment. And I think it's a, that's wonderful advice for anybody who aspires to, to any goal. Just, you just assume that if you're doing the best you can with what you've got at the moment, God will find a way to use you. That's, that's, that's my hope. And uh, That just took a lot of stress and anxiety out of a lot of listeners. <laughs> I think a lot of people, Terrell, can do what you just said. But not a lot of people are wired or really know what the next 15 moves are. And they just need to kind of walk into yeah. the fog of knowing the next move and having an overall feeling of where they're going. But I like the way you actually said, I had no idea I would be where I am now. And if my younger self coming off my mission could have seen me, it would have been probably pretty surprised. And as I age up in my life, I'm 60. That would be my feeling too with younger people is just the very advice you gave. And that it is doable. That's the thing I love about your advice. It means they're still trying to make the best next move. Um, but I love what you just said. So I'll let you keep talking. No, no, that's, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I started a graduate program at BYU and then I quit. And then I started <laughs> a graduate program at Cornell and then I quit that and went into business with my dad. And then I started a third time, a different graduate program in a different field at, at, at Chapel Hill and, and finished that. And um, that is cool to know you quit a couple of times. I did. And so you might think, well, wow. So you wasted, you know, two, three, four years there. But I, I think, you know, I've always remembered the blessing Levi, Lehi gave to his son, right? It was he, that, his, that his, his travails would be consecrated for his good. So I don't think the point is to do what God wants us to do. I think God wants us to do what we want to do in righteousness, and then he will consecrate it Love to our good and find a way to use it for his purposes. So, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I think you just try to, you just try to move ahead with a pure heart, having the right desires, and God will find a way to use you. And I think there are many, many, many audiences, um, both within the faith and without. And there have been times when I felt my audience was the academic world, and I wrote for them. There were times when I felt it was my fellow saints, and I've, I've written for them. And now in my latest venture, uh, Nathaniel and I have written a book uh, that's going to be published by a, a Protestant press, because we both felt that we and maybe the church are at a moment where we need to stop finding refuge in our special little corner of Mormon studies and participate in the main conversation going on at the big table. And that's what I would like to see us do as a church and as members. And so that's where, that's where I'm tentatively taking steps forward now is to see, well, do I have anything to say that's reflective of Latter-day Saint belief and thought that can be a part of a larger Christian conversation. I have to think our heavenly parents love that, that there's things that we can do as Latter-day Saints to bridge build, to work together with other faiths, to reduce divisiveness, to bring healing. Um, we certainly need examples of that in our world. You, at the beginning of the podcast, you referenced what it was like to be a professor and just the wokeness and the divisiveness and the gotcha it's certainly part of our political world and our world right now. So I think that's an example of what we can do. And sometimes the best way to do that is working with other faiths or other groups and find common ground and using the principles of our church and our doctrine. 
Um, another question comes to mind, if you have time, there may be listeners that aren't familiar with the Maxwell Institute. They may have a general awareness that it's at BYU, that they're a scholarly group. Um, just take a minute, and if there's listeners that aren't, and I know Spencer Fluman, um, I believe, is the Maxwell Institute director. He's been on the podcast. I certainly appreciate the work he's doing. But just tell our listeners a little bit about the Maxwell Institute if they're not familiar. Well, the Maxwell Institute has a long genealogy. It, you could trace it all the way back to farms. Then farms became, uh, oh gosh, I, I don't remember all the incarnations, CISPART, Center for the Preservation and Study of Ancient Texts. And, and um, it's gone through many iterations reflective of different mission statements. Uh, originally, it was just a kind of uh, defensive apologetic organization that responded to attacks on the church. Uh, in its latest iteration as the Maxwell Institute, it has a mission statement which was uh, approved at the apostolic level, the Board of Trustees of the Church, and that is its mission is to gather disciple scholars and to strengthen faith in the restoration and to face both the saints and the world of scholarship. So it has kind of this dual mission. On the one hand, we are we're doing things like the brief introduction, theological introductions to the Book of Mormon. That was a Maxwell production where we're trying to address Latter-day Saints who want to be more thoughtful and reflective and intellectually engaged with their faith and strengthen that faith. At the same time, we are trying to do work that addresses the larger academic world so that we are participating in that conversation, making our presence and our values and our findings known to a broader intellectual community. But, but the, 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 the phrase that's really at the heart of the Maxwell is this phrase, the disciple scholar. And that really comes from Elder Maxwell, whom the Institute is named after, who, who taught that scholarship is a form of worship. And so we'd like to think that the Maxwell Institute is uh, one of the most focused incarnations of this uh, mandate that we have as a church to seek knowledge by study and also by faith. And so that's what we try to model there. It's a small institute. It's on campus, but it, it doesn't belong with any one department. It's, it's semi-autonomous. And most of us, there are research scholars who don't have teaching assignments. Thank you for that. Um, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners in closing? No, I think I've uh, I've said enough. <laughs> okay. Well, um, listeners, check out The Doors of Faith. It's um, I look forward to finishing the book as I've been reading it. It's a desert book. It's at Amazon. I think you can draw it directly from the Maxwell Institute. And um, thank you, Dr. Givens, um, Terrell Givens, your friend to all of us for your work within our faith. And in so many other circles, you have a unique, beautiful life mission. And my wife and I have certainly enjoyed reading your, you and your wife's books over the years. And listeners, this is Richard Osler and Terrell Givens signing up from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.